in the very beginning of so they immediately I, I treated myself so i put on two tourniquets uh one of my teammates eventually got to me he put on a third tourniquet um in that moment right there and then man like i knew i was dying i i there was no question in my mind that was it Th- this is where it ends you are now tuning in to the roughnecks podcast with your host Cole Nixon. Much love. What's up, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Roughnecks Podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you guys about Desert Fox Golf. I've recently partnered up with them, and they have some awesome products that you definitely want to check out. They have something called the Phone Caddy, which is the best phone holder in golf. It comes in many different colors. And they even have ones with funny sayings on it, like, I work to support my golf habit, and it takes a lot of balls to play like me. If you are like me and like to use a golf app while you're playing, then this is the thing for you, because it holds your phone in a convenient location right on the golf cart. They even have a cigar holder attachment for it. One of my favorite things is their drink aid tumblers. They have these awesome 17-ounce stainless tumblers with a screw-on lid to hold your favorite beverage while playing around the golf. They have different versions from the classic swing aid to nurse aid, hunting aid, fishing aid, and my personal favorite design, the Patriot Aid Tumbler. Head over to DesertFoxGolf.com and use the promo code ROUGHNECKS for 10% off your order. But let's get into today's guest. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Roughnecks Podcast. This is episode 157, and joining me today is an awesome guest that I'm super excited to dive into with. So without further ado, Nick Lavery, welcome to the Roughnecks Podcast. Cole, how you doing, brother? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to get you on here. We just talked a little bit before, um, you know, just the crazy things of being on the road, and you're a busy person, so I'll try to keep this as short but as detailed as i can also so but i like to kick off my episodes by allowing the guests to kind of give a background on themselves so tell the roughnecks listeners who you are right on man um yeah so you know name's nick lavery uh i'm active duty member of the united states army special forces where we are more commonly referred to as the green berets i've been doing this now shit coming up on 16 years which it's wild when you just say that out loud, how, how fast it goes by. And, uh, you know, and I love what I do. And, and I, I put that up really early because it's important as you know, you and I will start talking about some, some experiences and some more detail. A lot of the roads lead back to that. Um, and a lot of the questions that I'm asked often also leads back to that. Um, I love what I do. I, I consider it to be amongst the greatest honor uh, anyone can, can take on is to dedicate themselves to the protection of a society in which they represent. And it's something that I not only take extremely seriously, but I have a genuine passion for it and a a deep connection, a deep sense of purpose behind it. Uh, Originally from Boston, Mass, for those of you that haven't already figured that out, spoiler alert, so you're gonna hear, you know, this kind of accent for the next hour and a half or so. Um, And then last, but certainly not least, actually most significantly to me, is um, married. My wife's also active duty army, and we have two young boys. Oldest is five. The youngest will be two, actually, on St. Paddy's Day, so in like a week. And uh, 
Yeah, man. Other than that, you know, we'll get into some of the, some of the more detailed stuff, but uh, but I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, you're from Boston, and the first thing I got to say about you guys from Boston is you're diehard sports fans. That's for sure. I just had to, you know, kind of get a little bit of crap in there because my roommate is originally from. One of my roommates from college was from Mass and diehard Boston, uh, New England Patriots, and all that kind of stuff. And he'd always, I always give him crap but he's like dude you're from ohio you ohio state fans are just completely different <laughs> breeds and you cleveland brown fans you guys are diehard fans for a team that doesn't even win games and i'm like yeah mm-hmm. that is what it is <laughs> hey you know what that deserves respect brother you know fair weather fans is something that it's a cult, something that i didn't grow up in you know like you said with diehard win lose or draw so good for you man that's, that's something to be <laughs> proud of yeah, actually, I was just watching the Ohio State basketball game pacing back and forth because uh, they have somehow miraculously made it to the Final Four of the Big Ten tournament, and yeah. they were the second-to-last seed, and I don't know how they've even made it this far. But um, mm-hmm. you actually played some – I played college football. You actually played some college football yourself, correct? I did, yeah. I went to uh, I went to UMass Lowell to D2 program. I uh, played outside linebacker. No. Uh, why I always like to ask, you know, people's decision. Cause I have a lot of college people like athletes on and like, why the decision to go there? Because I feel like that's very important in my audience. I feel like I have a lot of, you know, athletes and younger athletes listening. Why the decision to go there? Like what was the ultimate deciding factor? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the, the short answer I think is it was a, it was a new program. So it only, it, it had only been, the football program at U Lowell had only been around at that point during my senior year of high school for maybe three or four years. So it was new, it was under development. They just built a brand new stadium. Uh, there was a lot of opportunity for me to get more playing time earlier in my college career. Um, and they did a great job with their recruiting. You know, they brought me up there. I, I went on, you know, I think it was five recruiting trips, which was the max, at least back then. That you could go on, and they showed they showed me a great time. So I knew that from the football perspective, I thought it was a solid play, um, and then I would also have, let's say, an enjoyable college experience at the same time. Yeah, I wanted to ask too. Do you feel that college football helped prepare you for life? Or like for your future endeavors that you went on to do, do you feel like college football had, you know, obviously it doesn't prepare you for everything, but I feel like it helps prepare you for life. Can you attest to that? I would agree with that a thousand percent. Um, I mean, I, this is actually a really great question and talking point. I'm not sure if I've ever spoken on this um, publicly. For me growing up, man, you know, athletics was the one thing that I had to rely on that gave me something positive to do. I moved, me and my family, we moved uh, every year as a kid growing up. And a lot of that had to do with my parents and them struggling financially and just grinding. They had us really, really young, me and my younger sister. So they were doing what they needed to do, but I was in a new spot every year. So I was a new kid in school every year, all the way up until I got to high school. And that's really hot, man. You know, that, that's really difficult. I struggled socially. I struggled to keep friends, obviously, because I was in a new place every year. I was picked on. I was bullied, you know, which back then wasn't taken as seriously as it is today. Like, bullying is a is a pretty big deal now. Back then, it was kind of just, you know, being a kid. 
But no matter where I lived, there was always athletic programs for me to get into. So it gave me something to do that was positive. And that became my anchor all the way up through college. You know, so I went to private high school um, because of their athletic program. So I was given a great academic education because of sports. Even though I was a horrible academic, I still was in that environment. And then the only reason why I went to college was was for athletics. So even just from like the time I was a really young person all the way up through me being a grown man in college, sports really facilitated all that. And then in terms of preparation for the rest of life, I would argue that that also is 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 there as well. Um, really, regardless of, I think, what you do. But for me, eventually deciding to come into the military, you know, as a Green Beret, small team environment, team. That's like that's the key word, you know. And I did team sports and I did more singleton sports like wrestling and boxing. But that team dynamic and then, you know, the structure and the discipline and the work ethic and kind of these character traits and tenants that come with athletics, even at the at the youth level, but certainly once you get up into the NCAA, you know, these these systems and ways of thinking and ways of living day-to-day life are ingrained in us. So I would attest a lot of my success um, to my time in sports because that's really what began building the foundation in which I was able to build upon once I left school and began doing what I do now. Yeah, I mean, I can I agree 100% because I and I went to college for the same kind of type of reason. Like, I only went to college because of athletics. I played football at a small D3 school, but it was one of those things, too. I feel like when we're in sports, we don't realize like some of the dumb things your coach make you do or the dumb things your coaches are saying. You're like, eh, whatever. And then you get later in life and you're like, man, I remember that time that that coach said that. And like, mm-hmm. it doesn't affect me then, but it really affects me now. And I understand why they had us do it. And it's just crazy. The things like, that's why I always, I feel like it's a very good thing to have your kids or, you know, if you are a, a you know, a high school, middle school person listening to go play a sport, like you don't have to be the one on the field playing. Yes. You want to be, obviously that's what we all strive for, but just go play sports because the things you will learn through those sports, that team environment, especially can help you so much down the line. And like, I mean, it helps on your resume a lot of times where, you know, people are looking for people who played sports because they learn a lot of valuable lessons that'll help in the workforce. hundred percent, man. And, and, you know, I I don't think anything can replace uh, parenthood or guardianship, right. Or like whoever is looking after us as kids, um, the, the parents are essential, but having a coach, right? Someone outside of mom, dad, or your guardian or your grandmother, or whoever looks after you day to day to day, having someone outside of that, that is telling you what to do. And your job is to listen to them. Like that right there prepares you for life, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, people are going to be telling you to do things <laughs> a whole bunch of different ways at different times. So that alone right there, I think, um, the discipline, you know, res- respect, for authority having that mentorship outside of what exists within your home i think also uh brings tremendous value and if you can do that with some kind of consistency then it does set you up for success but you ultimately made the decision later to go join the military what was the driving factor that made you join the military like what was it that made you join 9-11 
I mean, I mean, I really just answer the question right there. I'll give you more of the story is, uh, you know, I had looked at the military in high school because, again, I lacked direction. I was a horrible student. I had sports and that was kind of it. And I, w- I really yearned to be respected. Um, I yearned for strength because I struggled socially. And the Marine Corps was kind of an idea that I had. Actually, I met with a Marine Corps recruiter. I think it was my sophomore year of college or I'm sorry, of high school. And the only thing that deterred that was me getting recruited to play football in college. So the only reason, again, why I went to college is so it's kind of put the military thing on hold, went to college, was playing ball. And then my sophomore year of college was 9-11. And, you know, those of us that were old enough to recognize the gravity of the situation that we were witnessing, it's a moment that none of us will forget ever. Um, I'm certainly in that same camp myself. And I can remember sitting in my dorm room watching Americans make the decision between burning to death in a building or jumping out of one live and just the amount of rage that was being sent through my body uh, was pretty powerful. And, you know, I knew where things were going to go. At least I was really confident that we were going to respond militarily to this in some fashion. So I really struggled, Cole, to stay in school at that point. I was ready to drop out. I went and talked to my advisor. I'm like, I'm done. I'm joining the military. I'm going to go fight. And he was like, whoa, whoa, like you're clearly pissed off. Like this is not a great time to make any major decision is when you're pinging in the red. So just like give it a day or two um, and just think about it, which I did. You know, I listened to some friends and some family and some other mentors. And ultimately, I decided to stay in school and grind out my degree and and then I began looking at options to enlist. So 9-11 was without question the catalyst uh, for, for that decision. But it was something that was kind of buried within me, you know, years prior. Yeah, it's weird to like not weird, but like, you know, everybody, I feel like no matter how old you were at the time of 9-11, everybody kind of remembers it. Like I was only, I think, three years old when it happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, it. I still like have these like just little memories of like my mom and dad like crying and like things and wow. I'm like what is going on and it's like but I was like three years old like I that's like all I can remember but like everybody remembers that moment and everybody had anger like you talked about and sadness and it, it was something you know I feel like a lot of people and you hear about it where like the day after 9-11 and stuff there was a ton of people that were ready to sign up like they it was wanting they wanted to do it it was crazy um and that that stayed the way that that stayed that that way for for years um you know because 9-11 was in 2001 i didn't come into 2007 and even when i was looking to commit there were lines outside of military recruiter stations because not only at that point i mean at that point we were surging in both iraq and afghanistan and so People were still very emotional and angry and wanting to contribute and wanting to serve even, you know, six, seven years after the event actually happened. Um, and I'll tell you, man, for and thank you for sharing that with me, Cole. I don't think I've actually talked to anyone that I can recall that was three at that time that has flashes of memories of that. That's actually quite amazing. What's even more amazing is that I'm serving alongside people in the uniform today that literally weren't alive when 9-11 happened, you know? So it, it, it's still, 
<laughs> it's amazing. And a lot of them are still coming in because of that. You know, you have a conversation with these with an 18 year old kid like, hey, why, you know, why do you want to be a soldier? And it's like, hey, you know, 9-11 can still come up as a reasoning for that, even though these people weren't alive at that point. Um, and I'll just say that, you know, the tragedy of, of September 11, 2001 will go down in history. But I got to tell you, the weeks and months immediately following that is. I don't know if I've ever been as proud as I was in those moments to be an American. I mean, instantaneously. All of these things that that to this day, you know, create this divisiveness amongst our society uh, disappeared. They, they were just they were just gone. I mean, political affiliation, gender, race, religion, like it didn't matter. I mean, there was the, the phrase we had united we stand. And that was just everywhere. And people were just joining together as Americans. And it was really beautiful. It was amazing to be able to be a part of that at that time. Yeah, I mean, you saw Bush throw out the first pitch at a baseball game. There's still videos of that today going around of, you know, hate the guy, love the guy, whatever political affiliation you have, that was like United We Stand. That is exactly what that was at that baseball game. Everybody was, you know, united. It didn't matter. any. None of the other, uh, other factors mattered. All that mattered is we came together as a country. And sometimes I feel like we might need that today but and throughout history but you know it is what it is and it but it sucks sometimes that it takes that for us yeah. to come together but it, it it's just 9-11 is definitely something that will never be forgotten mm-hmm. but this kind of leads us leads me into you know i read your book objective secure awesome book i, I really Thank have you. to say you know just i highly recommend it to anybody listening if you have not read objective secure i have it beside me and i had it marked up there's a ton of things that i loved about it um, you know, I wanted to ask though, what was the reasoning behind writing the book? Why did you decide to end up doing it? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, man. Um, so I'll fa- I have to fast forward a little bit through time through some stuff that we'll probably talk about. But in 2015, I deployed back into combat, back in Afghanistan as an amputee. That was the first time that I went in as a one-legged guy. And it was, you know, it was a historic moment. It was unprecedented. It hadn't happened before. So a lot of when we got back, the army, SOCOM, my unit, you know, really wanted to highlight the success that we did collectively, right? This is like anytime something happens for the first time, it's like, wow, this is really, this is a really great thing. So I was being thrusted into, you know, interviews and I was talking to people out of Washington and like senior leaders and I was really uncomfortable with it. I wanted nothing to do with the dog and pony show. I despised it. But when a four-star general asks you to do something, like he's not really asking you to do shit. Like you will go do that. That's your job. So I begrudgingly was doing these things. And there was one particular event where a bunch of policymakers from Congress were at Fort Bragg. And they were talking about our strength conditioning program that was asking for an increase in funds to expand the program. And the general asked me to come and talk to these people about what this program is capable of doing and me being an example of that, which I did. At the end of that, this was the USASAC commander at the time, General Cleveland. He's like, hey, dude, um, I realize that you hate this kind of stuff, but what I want you to just think on is that 
this really this isn't about you. This isn't about you and you seeking the limelight and you looking for fame and recognition. I, I know that everyone in this room knows that you're a Green Beret. You're on a team like that's your job. That's all you want to do. But this isn't about you. This is about the impact you can create. This is about the support you can bring to those beside you, those coming up behind you that are struggling with some kind of adversity, whether it's the same type of thing, a physical injury or not, like you have an obligation to them. And that was the very first catalyst moment where the light switch had been turned on. It really wasn't shining bright in my face, but that was when it turned on for me. And then so gradually I began kind of putting myself out there a little bit more and more into social media. And it was really, it was, it was conflicting for me. I was like, I don't know if I like this, you know, the general's got a point, but very slowly that began to happen. So I'm getting more like followers and people are more interested and I'm getting more messages and things are coming out. And I stopped getting asked the question, you know, how did you do what you did? Which is a fair question. Like the first time anyone does anything, people are interested. Like, how did you do that? So I'm answering people one at a time, like boom, 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 just like off the top of my head, answering, answering. Well, eventually that grows to the point where I'm getting that same question thousands of times over the course of, you know, a couple of years as I began to kind of get out there more and more. So at one point I just decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to answer this question on a Word document purely for efficiency, just so I can have a faster way to respond to people where rather than me writing this thing out every single time, I can just copy, paste, send, and then there you go. So it was purely based on efficiency for me. And then secondary to that was I felt like I would give the end user, you know, a better product, something with more reflection and more thought and a little bit more analysis. So I did that. I spent maybe over the course of a couple of weeks just outlining what my process was. And it was literally just like a step-by-step guide that I just kind of came up with through a lot of reflection and analysis and Man, I got to tell you, I, I grew a lot and learned a lot about myself by doing that. I was having conversations with teammates, my strength coaches, my dietitians. I was checking my training log. I was checking my journal. I was researching into things. Came up with this with this step by step guide, and I used it that way for several years, and it was very effective. People were like, "Wow, thank you. This was like awesome." I'm like, "Cool, man. Everybody wins. Faster for me. You're getting something better. Boom. We're good to go." Well, fast forward from that point to 2020, right? Just a few years ago. And it's July of 2020. And now we're like peak COVID, right? Like everything's shut down. The gyms are closed. The fight houses are closed. We're doing like a weird half on, half off work schedule. You know, everyone's trying to figure out how to remain productive in this, in this environment that we're living in. But so I have a lot of extra time and energy on my hands that I otherwise would have been spent in the gym or in doing jujitsu or at work or, you know, whatever. Well, one of my best friends, we play college football together. Uh, he hits me up and he's like, hey, man, I think you need to write a book. I mean, out of nowhere, Cole, this dude just like out of nowhere. I'm like, what? I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? He's like, no, I've been thinking about it. I think you need to write a book. I, I think I just hung up on him. I'm like, I'm not having this conversation with you. But I ended up giving it a little bit of thought. And again, I got all this extra bandwidth on my hands that I, I don't do well with. Like I get antsy pretty fast. So I hit him back and I said, you know what, dude? I have this, this Word document that I've been using for the last like four years. 
And I know it's effective. Like the feedback on this has been tremendous and it's helping people. I think there's something there. And he's like, I think you just found out what your what your book is about. And he didn't come into that pitch with any kind of specific topic in mind. My initial thought was I would write like an autobiography. I would like write, you know, like the Nick Lavery story or whatever, which I had no interest in doing. And I still don't. But that type of project is one that I knew I could sink my teeth into and I could get a lot of value out of for myself. So I just I just committed to it. And, you know, we were deploying into Iraq that December. So I gave myself that like 90 day window or so just to see what I could come up with. And I kind of already had an outline. So I just began adding more and more and more and more to it. And man, I caught the bug for this thing. It became like my obsession to the point where there were times I was jumping up out of bed at three o'clock in the morning and I just had to go right, which is wild to even still say that now, because if I was writing anything up to that point in my life, it was because I had to, whether that was for school or for work or like whatever. I was not a writer. I couldn't stay, had no interest in it at all until I started doing it about something that I had a passion for. And then I just, I couldn't stop myself. So I got to the point where I was hammering down like five or 600 words a day. And over the course of what ended up being just like three months, I ended up sitting on like 70,000 words. And next thing you know, it's like, wow, this is actually kind of a book. So I tell that that story, man, because, you know, it it still very much is exactly what it was intended to be with that, you know, nine page word document nine years ago. It's the exact same thing. It's It's a guide that I used to return back to my lifestyle. And it's a methodology that I still continue to leverage to this day in pursuit of, you know, my next achievement. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. You talked like you didn't want to write an autobiography, but, you know, it does. It is a I look at it as like a blueprint to life, like of kind of how to figure a lot of things out. And what I like about it is like you give the blueprint, but you relate it to things that, you know, were for you. Like you said, it was something that really helped you, but it makes a reader connect like, oh, all right, here's what it is here's how you use it or here's how you know you misuse it and like things mistakes you make and that's what i really liked about it because it makes it really easy to understand when you're going through like all right he's saying you need to do research but then you kind of go into like what you did the goods and bads and go off of that that's what i really like about it um you know just going through the book when i was reading it yeah and, and, and and thank you for that feedback man um one of my favorite pieces of feedback I get from people who have read it is it may sound, it sounds weird, but it's like, dude, I, I was aware of everything that you put in this book. Like there's nothing revolutionary that's in this. You know, I didn't like create fire and I'm like telling you how to build it. It's all, it's things that most of us are familiar with, you know, it's work ethic, it's discipline, it's, it's structure and strategy and tactics. And like, I may use some verbiage, that may be unique to us in the military. Um, but these are things that most people are familiar with. But when I, but what makes me, what brings me quite a bit of joy is when people are saying, because the way that you explained it, it helped me resonate with how I can leverage that in my day-to-day life. You didn't really teach me something new, but you equipped me to leverage what I already know or what I already do just at a higher capacity or with more efficiency. 
Yeah, and one of those things we will get into a lot later of one of the things in the book that really made me think and realize, like, oh, I'm doing this, and then you kind of talked about it, but we'll talk about that later. I kind of wanted to go into, before we get too much further, so people can kind of really understand your story, um, you know, in the book you talked about how you were injured not one, not two, but three times. Um, kind of take us through those three injuries, if you don't mind. Yeah, so in 2012, in September of 2012, uh, my team and I, we went in Afghanistan. We went to Wardak province, which is known um, for its its resilient and capable fighters. I mean, those are some resilient people going back to like the dawn of time in that area of the world. So we knew we were going into a hornet's nest, which is exactly the place we wanted to go, right? Um, so we got exactly what we wanted. It was a highly kinetic uh, deployment, literally from day one. And it proved to be the type of mission that we all signed up for. I was wounded on three occasions during that same deployment. The first one was really just a few weeks after we had got there. And I took some uh, grenade shrapnel to the back of my shoulder, which blew about a lemon-sized hole in it. One of my teammates patched, he plugged it you know, compression or uh, pressure dressing, wrapped some, a base band around it. Like it was good to go. It really wasn't that big of a deal, which sounds like I'm being tough and, you know, machismo, bravado. But, you know, in that type of environment, in that context, right, machine gun rounds are going off, rockets are zipping over our heads, right? We're in a full-blown gunfight. Adrenaline is just surging. It, it, it didn't really cause any kind of pain. It was more just like a shock, like, oh, shit, I have a hole in my shoulder. Uh, that's not supposed to be there. But other than that, it was it really wasn't that big of a deal. But what I'm grateful for about that particular injury, this was really the first kind of significant injury that any of us received. And it was an eye-opening experience for all of us. Like, whoa, um, we're human beings. And like, these things that these guys are shooting at us and throwing at us and dropping at us and things that are blowing up around us, like they could kill us. Right. And it was a, it was like a wake up moment for us. Like, Whoa, okay. Um, we're not invincible, which is important. I think to know that as warriors. So that was the first one, you know, it took me out of the fight for about a week. Uh, and then I was back to work. You know, I would I would bleed through my dressing, you know, usually once or twice a day. It was fine. You know, I got medics there on my team with me. We'd patch it back up and just and just keep working. The second incident was about six weeks after that. Yeah, because we were in November of, of 2012. We were coming back from an operation and our lead vehicle hit just a massive ID just decimated our lead truck. I was in the trail vehicle working out of a hatch. So it happened right in front of me, you know, about three, 400 meters in front of me, but it was, I mean, it was catastrophic. It was during that engagement, um, which was a, which was an ambush, you know, it was a full blown complex ambush that we drove into that I was with for the second time. And I took an AK 47 round to the face, which sounds a lot worse than it was. I got, I got really, really lucky, you know, really just grazed my cheek split me open it looked nasty it clipped an artery so it bled quite a bit but um i didn't actually know that i had been shot for like hours later um and one of my teammates was like dude you're like gushing blood and then it wasn't until i was eventually in front of a dock hours after that 
that they were pulling out little shavings from the from the round inside my cheekbone. Um, so that was the second time. Again, similar to the first, I got stitched back up, got put back together. They kept an eye on me at Bagram for a few days, and then I was back with the guys right after that. Right, you know, right back to work. And then the third time was towards the very end of our deployment. So now we were in we we're in March of 2013. Same deployment. And actually, <laughs> ironic timing. Tomorrow will mark the 10-year anniversary of this incident. Sometimes those of us that were wounded critically refer to this as our alive day, meaning that like a day that you probably should have died or at least could have died. That's tomorrow. So 10 years ago tomorrow was when this happened. And this was the result of what we refer to as a green on blue, which is a military way of saying an insider attack, which means that a guy that we had been working with, in this case, it was a member of the Afghan National Police Force, he turned against us and he opened fire into me and my team with a truck-mounted, belt-fed machine gun from about 25 feet away. So just a, a catastrophic incident, which was the initiation of another complex ambush. So this guy cracked off his gun, and then immediately we began receiving fires and rockets from outside our perimeter from about 25 um, enemy fighters. This was that Super Bowl moment, right? I mean, we had been kicking their ass for five and a half months. And these guys know what our deployment cycles look like because they see us coming and going on, on a very oftentimes very continuous schedule. So this was their chance to like push us out, right? Knowing that we're about to leave. So they brought the house down on top of us. Most of the damage to me was to my right leg. I uh, took what was estimated four, maybe five rounds, severed my femoral artery, uh, shattered my femur. I, I took a round to my lower left leg as well, which I didn't even know about for, for weeks later. In the very beginning, so they immediately, I, I treated myself. So I put on two tourniquets. Uh, one of my teammates eventually got to me. He put on a third tourniquet. Um in that moment, right there and then, man, like I knew I was dying. I, I there was no question in my mind. That was it. Th this is where it ends. I know how severe a femoral artery cut is, and without direct pressure on that artery, chances are you're going to bleed out. So this is where it ends for me. And I, and I. I I'm asked, you know, often like, what's that like, you know, I'm laying on the battlefield, bleeding out, dying. And I, I went through kind of a, a roller coaster of emotions. You know, for me, it began with frustration because I knew this was coming at the hands of somebody that I had been working with. So that was really tough. That was a tough pill to swallow. From there, I moved into a place of guilt where I I felt bad for what my family was about to experience. You know, I had the I had the vision of you know some general handing my mother a folded flag at Arlington. And I felt bad about what they were going to experience. But I, I did know that they knew that this is a warrior's death, right? Like they know that about me, that if I'm going to die, it's going to be in combat next to my brothers. Like that's the way I want to go down. So I, I felt like that would give them at least a little bit of relief 
a, a little bit of relief, but I felt bad for what they were going to experience. But kind of working through that brought me to a place of content because I did adopt and live by this come back with your shield or on it mentality. That's what it took for me every single day to go do the work that we had to do was that exact philosophy. So I was quite content. It was annoying and frustrating that it was going to be at the hands of a guy that I taught how to use the gun he shot me and my friends with. But you know what? I'm, I'm okay with this. About an hour and a half later was when I was eventually loaded on a, on a medevac bird. Um, because of the ongoing firefight, you know, they just they couldn't risk landing the bird until we got the situation on the ground under control. Medevac bird comes in. I get loaded onto it. I get medevaced out. They send us to an outpost that had what we call an FST, who stands for a forward surgical team. And I need blood desperately. The fact that I'm still alive at that point actually kind of defies the laws of biology. But I was still clinging. I needed blood. They put me on a transfusion. Some time goes by, and then my entire body begins to crash. And they aren't quite sure what the problem is, but they know I need to get to Bagram immediately to get to the actual hospital. And it's while I'm flying to Bagram. So they load me back on a helicopter. They send me to Bagram that they realize that they had given me a transfusion with an incompatible blood type, which is catastrophic if you do that on someone who's perfectly healthy. Um, for someone who's really already should have been dead, it's it's an absolute disaster. So everything you know was dying. The the med crew on that medevac bird, these guys got real creative and real aggressive with techniques to keep me clinging to life, and they were successful with that. So you know, I arrive at Bagram, and I'm intubated, dialysis, transfusion. They amputate my foot immediately. At that point, it was pretty much dead. Um, machines kept me alive for about three, four days. And then, uh, yeah, man. And then I, and then I kind of came back. What was, you know, the, you know, you kind of talked about all the mental aspects of like during the fight of everything that you went through, but when you came back, what was like the immediate mental stuff that you kind of obviously like, you know, you're trying to figure out what, what even happened kind of, and what's going on, but mentally what happened? Like when you came back. So in like the immediate moments of me kind of coming to, and I'm in the intensive care unit at Bagram, <laughs> my first thought was, all right, um, I'll be back to work in like a week. Of course, this was like, like absurd. I was still like in critical condition and it could die at any moment. But, you know, I had been wounded twice before and I had been somewhat conditioned to getting wounded, getting injured getting medical treatment, and then getting back to work. And I can still remember that first thought of, all right, like, I don't know what's wrong with me right now. I just know I'm in the hospital again, but the doctors are going to figure out what this is. They're going to patch me back up, and then I'm going to go back to work. Uh, so that was my, like, immediate thought. It really wasn't until I arrived at Walter Reed about four or five days later that it dawned on me that, okay, this is like, <laughs> this is a bit of a different situation than the two prior. Yeah. Cause you ended up, you know, losing your leg and 
you ended, but you end up making your way back. Why, what was your ultimate decision of, you know, instead of just kind of folding, I guess you want to call it. And, you know, people wouldn't bat an eye if you decided, you know what, I'm done with it. Like, I can't, like, I'm already, I lost my leg. I can't get back. You know, no one would have batted an eye, but your mindset immediately was to get back to your team, you know, after even already kind of, you know, right as you woke up, still trying to figure out. But then also, like, you went through that spell of where you just talked about where, you know, this is a little bit more serious, but you still ended up going back to your team. What was, you know, the mindset and the draw? Like, what drove you to want to do that? Yeah, so on the surface level, it's stubbornness, uh, competitiveness. No one was going to dictate my future but me, right? Just kind of on the periphery. At, at a deeper, at a deeper place, I know my purpose in life. I I, I, I know why I'm here. I know who I am. And that is one of a warrior, like, like I opened with. What I'm put on this planet to do is to defend a society. And I know that about myself. So even once I realized that my leg was gone, and actually at that point, they were still like incrementally amputating it piece by piece by piece over the course of like 40 surgeries. But I know my leg is gone, or at least a good portion of it's gone. That didn't change who I am and, and my meaning in life, right? On like a philosophical level, but also um, on a psychological level. Like, this is who I am. This is what I do. So w- that, that enabled me to completely bypass the what am I going to do question, which is where a lot of people get stuck, uh, uh, whether that's on the offset of some kind of traumatic event or just some adversity or some kind of failure or whatever. It's like, well, what am I going to do now? I That was never a question that I had to answer. I knew exactly what I was going to do, which enabled me to just go all roads lead to how, which are two different things. I know what I'm going to do. I have not a clue as to how, but this is an equation that can be solved. This is an equation that can be solved. At that point, I didn't know that it hadn't happened before, but it was irrelevant to me then, as it is now, right? That being the first to do it, I could not possibly care any less. I was just that confident that there is a way to do it. There, there is a way to answer the how question. This is an equation, and there's just a bunch of different variables and constants, like in any math equation. I just got to figure out which ones go where and in what sequence. So not only did that that enabled me to begin doing the things I needed to do, but it it just it, it kept me focused on something positive during all of the trials that were coming down the road in the moments when I was sometimes literally face down on the ground and all the doubts coming in and all the fears coming in and all the concern that maybe I set the bar too high or I bit off more than I can chew or, you know, is this even realistic? Like, I'm not immune to those. I'm not immune to those immediate reactions on the offset of something bad happening. I experienced that stuff every single day. But when I would find, when I would get into that little space, even if it was only for a second or two or 10 or 10 minutes, I was able to grasp onto, this is your purpose. So you, you, there, there is no question about what you're going to do. You've already answered that. So 
Forget about it. Just figure out what just went wrong just now. Learn from that. Reapply that knowledge and then go again and again and again. Like you will figure this equation out if you just commit to it. You know, one of the things you kept mentioning is like you you already knew your purpose. I wanted to ask you kind of what you thought of, you know, I feel like that's what a lot of people struggle with is finding their purpose, finding their why or what they're supposed to do. What do you, how do you think somebody kind of finds their purpose and finds, you know, their, their gift in life or what, what they're, you know, destined to do? Yeah. In, in objective secure, I, I touch on this, I think briefly, I have two recommended course of action and it kind of goes against what a lot of, Coaches, mentors, influencers, a term I can't stand, we'll throw out there. It's kind of, it's different from that. My first recommendation is really to rely on internal reflection, internal dialogue, like letting your soul tell you what your purpose is. That's a lot easier to say than it is to for that to happen. And then certainly when it comes to executing on that, it's going to be really, really hot. But let yourself determine what that is and you know to enable that it begins with developing an internal dialogue and for me that's literally looking myself in the mirror and saying what do you want to do who do you want to become and then just listening and letting your soul answer that question or those questions for you but what i've learned is Oftentimes, that answer is not going to come just blasting through the mirror and punching you square in the face. It'll likely show up in the form of a whisper. It'll be very quiet and very subtle. So if you're not listening, if you're not actively listening, then you may not hear it. And in order to be actively listening, you have to put it out there. And this isn't, you know, the law of attraction and spirituality and like all that can play a role. I'm talking about literally asking yourself these questions, then listening for the response and knowing that it may not happen immediately is something that we have to commit to and deliberately work that in to our daily rhythm and our scheme and our practices. I like that as the, as the first mechanism to determine. The second is what most people would say is preferred, and that is focusing on your talent, right? And this may end up being, by all means, the way to go. Um, and I'll explain why I, I put this too. Focusing on your talents. And to be very clear, talent and skill are two different things. Okay. Talent is inherent skill. Talent comes naturally to us. Skill is earned solely through thousands of hours of hammering down on a particular craft. Focusing on our talents, right? The things that we do best with the least amount of effort. Those are our talents. So by focusing on those, chances are that it is connected to our purpose. It is likely connected to something we are passionate about. And it will set us up statistically for success because we already do this pretty good with minimal effort. If I layer on skill, earn skill on top of talent, the likelihood of success will obviously go up. The reason why I put that as number two is let's just say that I wake up one morning or I'm having this internal dialogue every single day and something talks to me and says, you know what would be really awesome is if you start building homes for people, 
I, there's, your soul just, I want you to, I want to build homes for people. That's what I want to do. That would give me great fulfillment in life. Well, let's just say that that happens, but I can't stack two blocks on top of each other without them falling over. I can't hammer a nail into a board without smashing my thumb. I have no carpentry skills. I have no engineering skills, nothing. But there's something inside me that's saying, no, no, no. You were put on this earth to build homes for people. Who's to say that you can't do that anyway, even though you have zero talent associated with that? I would argue no one can fucking say that to you, which is why I like to put that up front. I put that, the second option now, focusing on our talents, because eventually we're going to have to start executing. Day after day, week after week, a month after month, a year after year, like the clock is going to keep ticking. So at some point, we have to start actually doing. And for me, the identification of my purpose, that came as a result of me doing, right? What I'm recommending is really not the route that I took. I, st- I just started doing things. I, I said, I'm going to go into the military because I'm pissed off and I want to get some some vengeance on this thing. It was by the act of doing that I realized, one, I love what I do, and, and two, this is what I'm. This is what I'm putting this earth to do. Yeah, and you know, I feel like a lot of it does start with internal. Like you, we all have that little voice in our head, that little whisper, like you talked about, that's telling us, like, you should do this, like you should do this. Like we have it there. It's it's there for all of us. But I feel like, like we kind of you talked on, like you know, you have that doubt, that fear, that you know, maybe I'm setting the bar too high. I don't know how to do this. Like anything today is at your fingertips, especially with the internet. Like if you want to learn how to do something, it's there. There's a YouTube video on how to fix a Honda. There's a YouTube video on everything that you want to know about. And you know, like you may not be great at it now, but like you talked to, it's through the art of doing like literally just putting yourself out there and learning how to do it. Like when you joined the military, you didn't know exactly what you were doing at first. Like, I mean, it's the same as, whatever you go into like my job when i went into installing pools and patios i had no clue what i was doing four years ago when i started this job but i've learned through the like through doing it you learn how to do things and that's the biggest thing is like it's out there if you want to do something our purpose is there we we know what it is but i feel like a lot of us are scared because we also listen to the outside factors of people Mm -hmm. telling us oh you can't do that. Like you don't know how to do that. Or, you know, I had people telling me like, you started the podcast. What do you, what, and now I'm 157 episodes in. So like, it's a, you have these outside factors, whether it's internal or external that are telling you, you can't do it, but use that. And I think you talk about this in your book of like, use that self doubt that, you know, external doubt, everybody telling you you can't as motivation to go do it because, you know, no one thought you were probably going to be going back and as a, you know, an amputee and no, you were the first, obviously you were the first one to ever do it. So it's, it's available. It just takes doing, it takes your effort if you want to go do it. Yeah, dude, you bring up so many great points here, Cole. I mean, one, you, you hear this quite often. It's like, Stop caring what other people think and just and do it anyway. And that's that's really easy to say, and it looks great on a bumper sticker. Because we're human beings, we are social creatures, and we are driven by emotions. Right? Dale Carnegie says it best in his book, human beings are not people of logic, we're people of emotions. That's absolutely accurate. There's an emotion attached to every single thing that we think and do. Um, and we're social creatures. So it's easy to just say, like, stop giving a fuck what other people think and just do you. But that goes against 
us as human beings. It's wildly unnatural to do that. So for one, I want your listeners to just realize that it's okay that you feel influenced by external factors. That's part of being a human being. That is quite normal. That's quite normal, which is why that 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 influences most people to play it safe or avoid the risk or avoid overextending out of fear of judgment externally. That's perfectly natural. That said, those that do end up living their purpose, those that end up achieving greatness, elite status, et cetera, they're, 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 they're living unnaturally in a lot of ways. Like they're the unusual ones because they, they're, they're willing to actually do that for real. And it's, it's hot. It, it's hard to do. It's simple to say. It's simple conceptually. But it is really difficult to do because it goes against a lot of the realities of us as human beings. My best piece of advice when it comes to this is something that I had to adopt when I was in the hospital is becoming extremely comfortable in solitude. Extremely comfortable in solitude. Again, easy to say, hard to do. And this does not mean just intentionally isolate yourself from the world with the, you know, fuck the world hoodie on with the hood and just like bury yourself in this like cocoon, right? The support that I had during that process and through today was essential in enabling me to do all the things that I needed to do. However, when it comes time to people believing in what you believe in, that is where you're going to have to separate yourself and be completely and totally fine with your commitment to a belief, your commitment to a path, your commitment to a goal, regardless of who else around you believes in you. And take their support when it's offered. Go out and find it. Find assets to leverage, teammates to onboard, assets and allies and coaches and mentors. Like, Go find these individuals because they will enable you to, be, to move faster and more efficiently and be more productive. But if at any point, Someone's like, dude, what you're talking about is crazy and will not happen. Hey, man, no problem. Thank you for thank you for that. But I'm locked in on this, right? And a lot of people, they live through their spirituality and through their religion. And I ask people, you know, do you believe in God? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, great. If tomorrow, every single other person on the planet overnight became an atheist, no one else on the planet believes in God the way you do, would you still believe in that God? Yes. Okay. Like that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean that you just write everybody off necessarily. You can still have your family, your friends, your coaches. You just believe in what you believe in and you're okay with you being on an Island with that belief and being able to execute with those people around you, even though they don't necessarily believe in what you believe in. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to cut like you you, know, talk, you don't have to cut them out exactly, but you have you do have to kind of sacrifice some things in a way for your goals, for all your dreams. And you talk about that in your book when you were writing the book. Even you, you know, you gave up kind of watching football sometimes to where you're like, man, I you know I could sit here spend a couple hours watching a game, or I could go in and you know work on my book and work on the th- my goals, work on the things that I'm looking forward to. And you know, people are gonna call you crazy. And there's the cliche quote of, you know, if people aren't calling your dreams crazy, then you're not dreaming big enough or whatever mm. it is. 
But that, yeah. that, I mean, it's, it's kind of the truth because you know, I've, I've had so many people on that have talked about it. And, you know, the most recent is a guy who I went to college with. He's a videographer now for the NFL and for Ohio State football. And, you know, he told his friends and stuff like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be working for the NFL one day. And they all laughed at him like, yeah, OK, dude, like you go to a D3 school, like you're not going to make it to like the biggest stage of football. And especially he was a baseball player. He wasn't a football player or anything. He just really liked videography. And then he ended up there. And it's use that as motivation. And you're going to have people telling you it's not possible. But like you said, just you don't have to write them off. Just kind of be like, you know what? Thanks. I appreciate that. But that's not my mindset. But that's the big thing. And it's easier said than done. If, when those people say that, don't take offense to it. Like you can't let that deter you away from your dreams and your goals because that i feel like that's what happens with a lot of people in you know i'm guilty of it myself we've all done it where you know people tell us like it's not you, you, that's not possible or you're not going to be able to do that but there's plenty of people out there that have been told that you're a prime example of you know it's not possible for you to go back to combat after losing your leg and you still did it so mm-hmm. use you don't have to write them off like you said but use that and just keep moving forward is the biggest thing well i think it's important to also Keep in mind that with some of this external, you know, judgment, what, where's that coming from? And oftentimes one, it's coming from a place of love, right? Like this person cares about you and they don't want to see you disappointed. So recognize that Two, it could also be coming from a place of resentment. You know, perhaps they failed at something and stayed down and you grinding and driving is reminding them of their failures or their self-perceived inadequacies. And that's just being projected on you because you're driven towards something. Having a recognition, if it's one of those two things, which I experienced, was important because I was able to I was able to see that. If it was coming from my mother, who's like, you know, it's like you just you love me. You don't want to see me, you don't want to see me fail. You don't want to see me hurt. I, I respect that. Right. I, I don't need to cut you out of my life because of that, because I know where this is coming from. Hey, OK, Ma, thank you for that input. I appreciate it. I love you. I'm going to go back to work. Or if it's the guy or person who's just coming at it from more of like a hater perspective because they're feeling inadequate. Hey, man, thank you. Uh, you know, are you struggling with something like, you know, let's train together. Like, what are you working towards? Like knowing where that's coming from, I think is important. And then lastly, you know, because we kind of talked about cutting people out there will may very easily come a time when that does have to happen, you know, and that's, that's a really difficult decision to make. I had to make it several times where just the negativity or just the anchor was just so constant that I was like, you know what, this is not in a place that I can maintain this because it's derailing me. You're, you're an energy drainer. You're draining my life force from me. And having to make that really hard choice of removing that individual from your circle. And now we're kind of talking about the power of the community that we surround ourselves with. But it, it, it's absolutely there. Cutting out, you know, an hour of Netflix a night is pretty easy compared to removing a relationship from your life. But it may get to that point. You just have to ask yourself, if I maintain this relationship with this individual and I am unsuccessful, and that is what I determined to be a big part of just the why. How solid of a relationship are we really going to have moving forward? 
my resentment may very easily be so built up that it will be a, a worthless relationship anyway versus sacrificing that in the name of your mission and living your purpose and pursuing your dream. Are you okay with accomplishing that? And then looking back on, man, I wonder what would have happened if I had maintained that friendship or that relationship. I've, I've made that choice um, you know, several times. It was really hard to do. I can just say that I look back at that with, with no regrets. So again, one of those things that's easy to say, easy to talk about in real time, it can be much more difficult, but there's this kind of cliche expression that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And although statistically it may not be 100% accurate, theoretically and conceptually, it's dead on balls accurate. So be very deliberate about who you invest in and just know that you are absorbing their strengths, weaknesses, their attitudes, their mentalities. Um, and you just have to make those really hard choices. Yeah, it's crazy that you say that because I just had a recording last night where we talked about the same exact thing, like with the five people. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's not 100% accurate, but like if your five closest friends are millionaires, you're more than likely to be the six because you are absorbing, like you said, you're absorbing their habits and what they do. You're learning from them. And it's good to surround your, your community is a big part of who you are because who you surround yourself. I mean, they told us the first day um, when I when we moved in for football, when I was a freshman, I remember the first thing I heard and it still stuck with me today. And it was mainly directed at the freshmen. But the first thing they told us in that first team meeting is we had a saying, y'all, y'all, which is you are who you associate with. And it was mainly, mm -hmm. you know, being in college, you're going to get those distractions, those temptations to make some wrong decisions. And being in a smaller school, our football team had eyes on us at all times. Like we were, you know, the biggest group on campus. We had eyes on us at all times. So we had to kind of be careful of what we were doing you know, outside of, you know, the football world and not to get us in trouble. But it, it, it is a big thing. If you're surrounding yourself with these people that are essentially better than you, it's going to help you grow for go further in life. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I talk in the book about allies uh, from a terminology perspective and just everything you just said. So accurate and, and putting deliberately putting people alongside us to grind with and work alongside of that are better than us at things it enables us tremendously you know there's the there's the expression you know if you run a hundred meter sprint with people that are slower than you barring something crazy happening you're going to win like 99 times out of 100 but if you start competing same sprinting as people faster than you you may lose 100 out of 100 but your time is going to go up because you're going to be digging in just that little extra deeper to try to keep up with the people that you want to impress, your friends, your teammates, your whoever. And that kind of concept is absolutely accurate. What prevents a lot of us from doing that is really our ego and our pride. And just being the loser frequently can just hurt us. But if we can get past that and recognize the tremendous value it brings to us by by intentionally being one of the slower people in the race that get past that hurdle, dude, things skyrocket. If you can take that humility and bury and live it and own it and it be authentic, man, you'll watch things just absolutely skyrocket.
Yeah, and you've spoke on it, and it's been talked about. I think I've said it over a hundred times on this podcast. But you will learn more from your failures than you ever will your successes. Your failures, you know, the 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 defeats, the you know, losing. That's where you learn and grow. Kind of speak on that and how it, you know, how that affected you. Yeah, it, it took me. I'll say embarrassingly, but you know, I, I recognize that it's hard a while to recognize what you just said to be without question accurate. You know, I grew up competitive. Um, I grew up with a chip on my shoulder. I grew up an athlete, and I always had something to prove. And I was the guy that never lost at anything, which, of course, is inaccurate and relatively immature as well, I would say. Um, it really wasn't until I began going through this process of, of getting back to getting back to the team, getting back to my lifestyle that I was able to modify my relationship with failure. And I learned what you just said, that like that is where the wisdom is located. And it's just something that most of us are, are again, familiar with. It's like when you get it wrong is when you're like, oh, okay, yeah, now I see like what I did or what I didn't do is to, and that's why I failed at that particular task. It has to hurt though. Like the pain is what brings about the, the desire to, or the need to learn to avoid that happening again. Like it has, it has to, it has to be uncomfortable. Um, and I think that's what drives people to avoid that quite often is the emotional damage it does to getting it wrong and failing, uh, the external judgment that comes with that. Um, but again, you can get past those roadblocks. You can get past the pride ego. You can take on the humility and then just see the value in messing it up as long as you learn from it and then reapply that wisdom and you do that again and again and again you're creating a weapon i mean like you're creating a human that is capable of literally anything <clears throat> you may tell me that <clears throat> every time you get knocked down not only are you going to get back up but you're going to get better and you just do that again and again and again and again and again how do you stop somebody who lives that way i would argue that you can't yeah, I mean, you said it has to hurt, and that like literally sparked a couple, you know, vivid memories in my mind from my football days. Of you know, there was two times in my football career that I vividly remember, like it hurt that we lost, and like you know, once was in high school when we lost to a one and eight team, and we were eight and one and lost conference, and you know, it's one of those feelings. And the other one was in college when we lost a game, and if we'd have won, we would have been conference. Champion. It's the same type of thing, but it it hurts and it makes you learn from it a lot more and you know you kind of but going off of that you you can't just give up when that happens and that's one of the things that you you know from following you on social media and reading your book and you know watching your ted talk and those things like you learn through you and there's three things that you speak on a, a lot which is i will always place the mission first i will never accept defeat and i will never quit kind of take me through those and you know what those mean to you <clears throat> Yeah, there's actually a fourth tenet in there as well, um, which is I'll never leave a fallen comrade. And those, that, those tenets are referred to as the warrior ethos, which is derived from the soldier's creed, which is a mantra that is literally buried into your head from the day you show up to basic training. And I've just used those four principles, those four tenets as a framework uh, to create what I refer to as the warrior mindset, which is the first section of objective secure. Each of those tenets, 
And there's a lot of military language in there. You know, obviously, that's where it comes from. But they all really translate into one word each. And for those of your listeners, this is where you get your pen out and you just, I'm going to ask you to write down four words and then dissect what those are. I'll always place the mission first is discipline. And there's a reason why that is at the foundation of this mentality, because without it, you're done. The game's over before it even starts. There's a lot of talk on motivation and the value of motivation. I often get late, get labeled as a motivational speaker, which is okay. <clears throat> motivation is a, for me, what I do is a byproduct. Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a coach. I'm a mentor. I'm a teacher. I'm an advisor. You will be motivated. Chances are when we get done working together, but that's not my goal because motivation comes and it goes. It's a, it's a blip in time. It's short term. I need to, I need you to be operating with or without motivation and that quite literally is discipline. So I'll always place the mission first is discipline. It's it's a combination of sacrifice and time prioritization or time management. What are you willing to give up uh, in order to put what you want most before what you want now? So I will always place the mission first is discipline. I will never accept defeat is resilience. And we talked about the relationship with failure, which is buried within that like mental toughness, be willing, can you take it on the chin and sometimes lose and recognize the value in going through that and extracting that wisdom and knowledge and ramming it back into your process and going again and again and again. So I will always place the mission first, discipline, I will never accept defeat is resilience. I'll never quit is persistence, okay? Which there's an overlap between persistence and resilience, okay? Persistence meaning I'm going to keep moving forward in the face of adversity, which is, of course, also tied to toughness and resilience. But where persistence becomes unique is continuing to move forward, not only in the face of adversity, but in the face of success, in the face of milestones, in the face of achievement, right? This concept of satisfaction does not exist. Even when you reach that ridgeline, yeah, congratulations, go to a nice dinner, crack a couple of beers with your buddies, whatever you do, but then zero in on the next objective. Because the second we stop growing and stretching and striving, we're no longer living life. We're just waiting for death, right? So persistence is that is that third one. And then I will never leave a fallen comrade in the literal terms is one that we take extremely seriously uh, in the military and in other communities that I will not leave you behind under any circumstances. What that translates into is the word commitment, an, an unbreakable, non-negotiable contract that we establish with ourselves, an, an authentic willingness to do whatever it takes, which is a bumper sticker slogan as well. Easy to say, much more difficult to do. But that is what that ethos is translated to to me. It's a commitment. And again, it's it's knowing that belief, hanging on to it in the face of doubt, external pressures internal questioning no no no. this is what i'm going to do this is unwaverable this is non-negotiable just like we will come get you and bring you home on the battlefield so those four tenets man they break down into four words discipline resilience persistence and commitment and if you adopt those philosophies and dig into what they mean and begin living them tactically like through physical execution I can't just stay in the conceptual. I can't just stay in this, you know, theoretical 30,000 foot view. How do you take that and apply it day to day with what you're doing with your body, your actual actions, 
are they in line with those four methodologies of life, man, you, you, you begin operating mentally through those four tenets. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what becomes impossible at that point. You know, you talked about, you know, with the, I'll never quit. And, you know, even through the face of success and, if you stop then, then you're stopping your progress because you're living in your comfort zone. No progress is made in your comfort zone. So if you stop, if you stay in your comfort zone, you're not growing. Even if you think you made it, you have everything you wanted, you're, you're not done. It's not over yet. Like you still have a lot of things to do. And, you know, you kind of touched on it in the book as well. And sometimes that and you talk about how, you know, doing the hard things first, too, when you have all these things that you have to do you talk i think the first thing you do when you wake up is your flexibility stuff which you said you hate to do you don't like doing kind of take me through why you do that first well i, I want to highlight because it's, it's right next to me i'm, I'm rereading uh, the book of five rings by uh, miyamoto musashi who's considered one of the greatest samurai swordsmen ever um and he talks about in the, he talks about in, in this book that even the elite even the masters their pursuit of mastery never ends and this is the way of life um, which is exactly in line with with that idea of persistence even in the face of milestones and victories um you know to answer your question it's doing the things that we know bring value whether or not we want to do them or not and that's another definition of, of discipline you know for me i i tend to and i seek to front load as many of these things as i can do um one because it really sets up that day uh for success if i begin my day doing the thing or things that i want to do least by no means are we coasting for the rest of the day or it's not just downhill like the rest is going to take care of itself but by definition everything else beyond that will be easier because you did the worst thing that you had to do first. So there's a there's a methodology and there's a reason behind front loading that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and then second to that is you know you, you, the 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 rise and grind mentality, right? The importance of waking up at three o'clock in the morning. And you know you hear this a lot, and this is, there there is value in that. Um, for me, and what what I what I challenge people to 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 leverage is. The time of day really is almost irrelevant and it's really more dependent on your particular life and schedule, right? Because if you stay like, if you're not waking up at 4 a.m., you're a loser or like you will be unsuccessful if you're not waking up. Well, like what about the people that work third shift? So like that's not an option for them. So does that mean that there's like no way for them to achieve greatness or become successful or, or whatever? Like that's obviously ridiculous. Most of us in this society, right, work like a nine to five type routine. Therefore, the early mornings, what it really does is it it buys you a chunk of time to dedicate to yourself, right, where you can prioritize yourself guilt free because the rest of your priorities haven't started yet, right? Like your family obligations haven't started yet. Your professional obligations haven't started yet. You just carved out a window that you can dedicate to yourself. That's the real value, right? That's the real value in the, the rise and grind type mentality. It's just, 
It's the window for you to invest in you, which is incredibly important. And a lot of guys in the military struggle with that. Like we live by this selfless service code, which is part of what makes us successful. But if you're not prioritizing yourself, I mean, you'll be worthless to your teammates, your family. Like you need to be in a good place for yourself. Like the classic um, cliche is, you know, in, in the aircraft, when the oxygen mask comes down, like put yours on first before you help like the person next to you. It's like, if you're in a bad position, like you're not going to be any good to them. So the routine for me is, is, is essential because it allows me to do the really difficult things that I really don't want to do in a window of time that's put there deliberately to focus on myself. Yeah, one of the quotes that I highlighted in your book was, you cannot win the war against the world if you cannot win the battle within your own mind. And mm. that starts with prioritizing yourself. And like, yes, it's good to have your family time. It's good to, you know, spend time with friends and stuff. But, you know, we've all realized those times that we fell away from ourselves. Yeah, like we're out having fun with our friends and we're spending every night with our family. But like, if we don't spend any time with ourselves and having those, you know, those internal conversations, you can fall off track easily. And but you also talk in your book about, you know, Monday's not the only day to start to, mm-hmm. to it's not the only start time kind of take me through that thought process, because I feel like and I'm guilty of it myself. But that's what a lot of people like all oh, start on Monday because it's already Wednesday now. So I, I can't start tomorrow. Kind of take me through that thought process and like your thoughts on it. Yeah. You know, I'll use some language because this is the way I use it. And it's fuck Monday, you know, or want to make this PG. It's, it's forget Monday, forget Monday. But you know what? leverage the fact that most people will wait till monday and that's where you know that's where the the new job starts on monday the new workout routine the new like i'm going to get on track monday and that's not just random like that's the start of the week it's the start of the new journey like it makes sense knowing most people do that automatically gives you an immediate advantage on on everyone else if that's what's happening if it's wednesday like you just said if you start tomorrow, you just bought yourself three days, like period. I think it mostly comes in line more so when we fail, when we fall off track, you know, when life gets in the way, like life doesn't cooperate. Okay. I don't care how disciplined and dedicated you are, how driven you are. Life does not cooperate. Life is going to throw you off track, right? Which is why that, that, that quote you just said is so important. Like you cannot win the war against the world if you cannot win the battle within your mind, like the world is not going to cooperate with you. Um, but it, it, it all begins and ends upstairs with, 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 the, with our mindset. So when you get knocked off track, when you eat the, the entire pepperoni pizza, even though you know you weren't supposed to do that, when you do that, when you fail, when you make the wrong choice, that is your chance to get back on track right there and that. And it's difficult to do, but leverage the guilt leverage the fact that you know you just messed up you know you you know that almost comes immediately following like like the mistake it's like uh it was really good while it was going down and like now i feel like crap i'm like if it's a pizza i'm bloated but more so it's like man i just like undid some work that i i'm have to i'm, I'm working myself out of a hole. like leverage that like lean into that lean into that discomfort Lean into that feeling of dis- of letting yourself down, and to be able to get back on the course right there and then, or at least as soon as humanly possible. So, the Monday thing, I understand it. 
Um, but like with anything, it just also brings about an opportunity. Most are doing this. If you're inclined to do that, it opens up a window for you to take advantage of if you have the ability to dig in and do it now. One of the things, too, that I really want to dive into kind of going off of this was, you know, you kind of talked in your book about how you were hitting good numbers at the gym. You had good grades. Everything was good, but you still weren't happy. Something was off. And, you know, I relate to that with I recently kind of went through like falling off track, essentially, because like I have these 15 things that I need to get done today, but I only got 14 done. So I'm I'm pissed off. Or even if I do get all 15 done, I'm still something's not right. Kind of talk about how sometimes I think people overfixate on things and how do you handle that of you got these things accomplished, but you're still not happy. How does somebody, you know, get their way through that? Yeah. So that realization for me came, um, really before I started the journaling, like deliberately. So I, you know, I had my training log, which was like sets, reps, grams of protein, that kind of stuff. But as slowly I began adding more to it purely for the sake of, of physical performance. And I began adding, more emotionally driven data points right like how am i feeling and that was just like a quick blurb at the bottom and i just i maintained that you know lethargic or i, I feel you know weak or or tired or, or or unhappy or you know sad or i'm angry or like whatever purely for performance right i wasn't on this like this journey to for therapeutic value it was, it was performance driven and I found myself as I was going back and doing my analysis being like, man, I'm hitting like a PR every week. Like my times are getting faster. Um, aesthetically, I'm coming in the way I want. Like my nutrition seems to be dialed in. Like on paper, everything reads like I should be beaming. But I'm looking at my notes at the bottom here and it's saying, you know, tired, disgruntled, aggravated. And I'm like, what is what's like, what's the problem here? And that opened up my journey into journaling like as a deliberate and specific thing and becoming more in control of and aware of my emotions like prior to that man like the idea of thinking about emotions was like soft it made me uncomfortable like i'm a football player i'm an mma fighter like i'm a green beret like I, emotions don't exist in me like i'm an i'm a, i'm an animal i'm a i'm a i'm a cyborg right like this is this is not for me. This is like kittens and rainbows and kumbaya shit. Uh, it's not for me. Living in in a place of ignorance because again, like emotions are wrapped within everything that we do, and that began my my my, my journey into learning more about that and recognizing as as uh, as is referenced in this book as well. You know, the warrior is very much in tune with his emotions he just has them under deliberate control and can manipulate them at his at, at his need like that's like next level thinking that's like deep thought it, it, it took me a while to kind of to kind of go that down that road so while milestones and prs and and goals are without question essential if we're miserable the entire time during that process, then what, like, what's the, like, what's the point, you know, cause the milestones aren't bringing you happiness, man. Um, and finding that place of happiness and unsatisfaction at the same time, that's, 
a powerful one-two punch. I'm living life happy, but I'm also unsatisfied. Like I want to be better. I want more. I want to grow. I want to achieve, but I'm also happy. So the, the importance of enjoying the process, I think, is critical. Enjoying the process just as much, if not more, than the prize itself. Yes, we're target fixated. We have these milestones. We have these objectives. That is the way I think. That is the way I live. But I've also found a way to be happy during that. Happy, yet also unsatisfied. Hey, you bring up journaling, and you know it's a thing I've talked about a lot on this podcast, and a lot of my guests, actually, the one I recorded with last night, has been journaling since he was nine years old, and you know it's mm-hmm. something that like you said, like our emotions, being a, a football player, being a man, really, like it, we don't, that, that's not who we are. Like it, we don't think about that kind of stuff, but we can, I feel like that can make us fall off track and live unhappily if we do not sometimes, you know, get our emotions out there. And we don't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to go talk to somebody about it. Sometimes the best way for somebody to do it is just writing their thoughts down, writing down what's going on, whether it's good or bad. I feel like it can help kind of manage those emotions. And like you said, it, like you have to be able to manage your emotions because that will make you better. Otherwise, it can hurt you. Yeah, and I, one of the reasons why I talk about, about journaling as much as I do is um, because I come from this you know, hyper type A environment and community. You know, these these savages and you know the idea for many of them to go home and write in their diary just makes them uncomfortable even just thinking it or saying it right it's just this like weak thing that 12 year old girls do and i'm like i got it man i, I hear what you're saying i was in that same camp for a really long time rather than looking at it from the perspective of a therapeutic and a way to increase your eq your emotional intelligence which is definitely rooted within performance. But if you're not there yet, attack it from an analytical perspective, like you would a training log, which is the way that I grew into it. Just use this as a tool to be able to annotate data, whatever data is you want. If if you're just beginning into this process, any data that you think is relevant, whether it's emotions or not, just start documenting stuff and then leverage that tool for performance or for whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, that is what I would recommend is like the, the initiation into doing that because there is an undeniable value that's been proven many, 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 many times over in writing things down. And that could perhaps be the one way in which you get emotions out of you. So it's not this cesspool that's boiling and it can eventually explode. But then you then also have something to reference that you can take advantage of. Um, use it as a tool and, just, and, and commit to it. That, that's my challenge to your listeners is commit to it. Get, have out five minutes a day and just see what comes out and just use it as such. And I'm willing to bet that over time you will see the value that it, that it, that it has within our emotional control, which is directly tied to our ability to perform and the the shortening of the window between an emotional reaction and our deliberate response. That window becomes much shorter as we increase this ability of awareness and manipulation. 
man, we've had a lot of great stuff. And but I'm gonna this kind of leads us right into these final segments of the podcast, which I'm super excited about. But I do have a question that I like to ask all of my guests, and it is if you could go back in time and tell your 16 year old self one thing, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. My 16 year old self, let me see, man. At that point in life, I was a scared, confused uh, kid with no direction, a lot to prove. Um, I would probably tell myself, uh, or at least try to educate myself on the, the power of patience. And I'm really careful with this word because it becomes a very slippery slope for a lot of people really, really fast. And it translates into what ends up being procrastination, like just kicking the can down the road because they tell themselves they're being patient. Patient is really nothing more than recognizing that things are going to take time. Uh, things are going to take time even when you're going at it aggressively every single day. It's still going to take time, right? Um, telling you know, telling my 16 year old self like it, it's going to get better, and if you remain true to your values, or at least at that point, if you begin to develop sound values and a level of integrity. And you live by that and you're willing to go against the grain and, and forget trying to impress people that you probably won't talk to or even know anything about 10 years from now um, and remain true to that and focus on what you know is right and you can be patient and live within that solitude and and, and live with being judged or being confused uh at the end of that road, you will be in a better place. Um, and it's a skill, you know, patience is a skill. So if I could, if I could go back and begin learning that skill earlier, I think not only would that have helped me in the short term, but also, you know, in the longer term. Yeah. I like that you mentioned, you know, the difference, there is a difference between patience and procrastination because I feel like a lot of people do confuse the two. And, you know, they are just kicking the can down the road instead of like you can go at things. But we live in such a world, too, that I think it's like so we want instantaneous results. We want it to happen now. And it's hard for us. And whether you're 16 or 40, like you're going to have it. It's hard to develop that, you know, that skill of patience. But it is a big thing is no matter what age you are, or where you're at in life, if you can begin to develop that it will help you immensely as you continue through your journey of life. Yeah, well said. But this moves us into the best segment of the podcast, which is Motivation Monday. <laughs> Motivation Monday is the point in the episode where I allow the guests to give the Roughnecks listeners a little inspirational bump to set the tone for their week as they listen on Monday morning. So what do you got for Motivation Monday? Well, we kind of already talked about, you know, the whole forget Monday thing, but we're here. All right. So, hey, we're here. So, you know, we can remove that entirely because we're here. Here's the day that you've had in your mind or not. But either way, like, here we are. I would say life is not a dress rehearsal. We have one shot at this. Uh, and, and believe me, I've been on all sides of death and it can end at a moment's notice. This is a gift. Uh, life is a gift. Like statistically, the likelihood of us being who we are right here, right now is as close to the definition of impossible as it gets. This is a gift and it's not one to take for granted. And you get one crack at it. 
why not go at it hot? Why not just leave it all out on the field? Like, it's oh. going to end. We're on this ride, and we will all eventually die. While we have this gift of life that we've all been given, why not leave it all out on the field? Like, really, like, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? You know, a lot of us, it's easy to get, to get, we feel trapped in our way of living and our responsibilities and obligations. And we're living this just mundane nine to five, you know, five days of misery for a 36 hour distraction. And like, that's just, that's just no way to live. I would argue that that's not, that's not living at all. There is a way, right? There is a way to wake up every day, happy and fulfilled and aggressive and ambitious. There's a way to do it. I'm living proof of that as many people around the world are. It's not something that is exclusive to people that are born with some magical power where they can live their purpose and live a life of passion and happiness and also remain unsuccessful or, or unsatisfied in their pursuit to develop. There is a way. The question is, are you willing to take the calculated risks? Are you willing to live comfortably in solitude? Are you willing to believe in something, whether or not anyone else around you does? Are you willing to make the really hard choices about who you surround yourself with? And of course, are you willing to make the really difficult sacrifices that are going to be necessary to battle through the adversity that's coming and dig in and live in that manner? It's, it's not easy, but it is an option for everybody. And why not? go at life that way yeah because we i mean it's been we talked about a ton on this podcast uh in general of i'd rather not be sitting on my deathbed saying what if like what if i'd have done this different we all have those things that we are looking at right now as you're listening or wherever you're at in life of man what if i would have started this earlier you always have those what ifs but where you're at right now in life why not start now like you've talked about and like why not you don't have to wait till monday yes this is this episode comes out on a monday but like you don't have to wait till monday fuck monday like you've talked about get after it right now instead of saying what if later in life get after it right now and down the line you'll be and even if you don't you know it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to like we've talked about a ton already on this episode where you're going to have those failures. You're going to have those setbacks. If it's maybe you tried something and you realize, man, I really don't like this. Guess what? Yeah, you didn't, you, you failed at it, but you learned from it. That's what happened is you learn from it. You grew from it and you found out what you do and don't like. And that, that is the big kind of puzzle that you go through in life of you have all these things that you try and they just don't work out, but you learned real quick. Just like we learned not to touch the, the stove when it's hot, like you, you don't touch it. And it's no different than if you tried a hobby that you thought you'd like, and then you ended up not liking it. You, you learn what you like and don't like. Dude, what if is a powerful uh, couple words. And, you know, what if comes from our brain oftentimes. And that is, what if I fail? What if things go wrong? What, looking at it from a, from a risk perspective. What if, what if the bad thing happens? What if the question also comes from your heart and from your soul? What if I pull it off? What if I, what if I can pull off just a fucking miracle? What if I can become more than what I ever thought was absolutely possible? Can you listen to 
the what if coming from deep down inside. Can you can you listen to that over and over and over again? What if? Yeah, there's risk. There's risk assumed with anything. There's risk of doing it, and there's risk of not doing it. There's the risk of what you mentioned that that fear of regret, looking back on, oh man, like imagine if I just tried. So what what if you pull it off? How about that question? What if you pull it off? What then? That powerful man. That's an option. Exactly. It's an option for us all. Exactly, man. And with that, that's a wrap on yet another episode of the Roughnecks Podcast. Nick, thank you for coming on. I truly do appreciate it. Where can people find and follow you on social media and also find your book? Yeah, easiest spot is uh, is our website. It's machinenick.com. It's got links to all the socials, to the books, to other merch and, and all the things. I will be putting those links in the episode description if you want to find them through there or just go find them yourself. Uh, definitely go read the book. Definitely follow them on social media. You will not regret it. Um, but and lastly, I want to say thank you for your service. I truly do appreciate it. And thank you for being an inspiration to not only me, but people around the world. I appreciate it, Cole, man. I've enjoyed this conversation. Have a good one, brother. And that's all we have for you guys today. We will be back Friday with yet another episode of Reno's Rants. But until then, you guys know the deal. Life is hard and it's going to knock you down just like a bull does to a bull rider. Don't let that bull of life walk all over you. Get up, grab the bull by the horns, and take control of your life. Thank you guys for tuning in to today's episode of the Roughnecks Podcast. If you liked today's episode, then please be sure to share it with a friend. You can follow the Roughnecks Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Roughnecks Podcast. Head over to roughneckspodcast.com and grab yourself some Roughnecks merch. Until next time, make sure you grab the bull by the horns and take control of your life. Roughnecks, out.